We are forever changed by our conversation with Holocaust survivor, psychologist, and internationally acclaimed author, Dr. Edith Eger, who is our kind of hero. Edith survived the unspeakable horrors of the Holocaust and shares her story of survival and triumph that came at great cost. Edith spent decades struggling with flashbacks and survivor's guilt and was determined to stay silent and hide from her past. 35 years after the war ended, she returned to Auschwitz and was finally able to fully heal and forgive the one person she had been unable to forgive, herself. Rather than let her painful past destroy her, she chose to transform it into a powerful gift, which she has used to help others heal. In Edith's words, I would love to help you discover how to escape the concentration camp of your own mind and become the person you are meant to be. At the age of 90, she wrote her first book called The Choice, Embrace the Possible, where she invites us to make the choice to escape mental confinement and become free. We invite you to join us as Edith shares her remarkable story of survival and the life-changing lessons that she has learned along the way. Hey, I'm Rivka. I'm a health coach and your guide to a more balanced, healthy lifestyle. And I'm Ida, mental health awareness advocate and ADD coach. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're mumtrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both inspired by how much we learned from each other's life experiences. We decided then and there to create this platform to invite you to join in our conversation and discover the joy of growth and personal transformation. We'll share the practical and valuable tools, tips, and shortcuts that may have taken us a little longer to learn. Yes, by combining our shared knowledge and expertise and the things that we do to bring more clarity and focus into our lives in mind, body, and soul. Join us in building a strong and supportive network of women who ignite positive change from the inside out. Hi, honey. Hi. Hi, Edith. You're so young and beautiful, and I love your smile and your eyes. It's good oh. to smile with your eyes, yes. Oh, I thank, thank you. you so, thank you. Uh, How are you today? I think it's important for me to let you know that yesterday was May 4th and 75 years ago I was liberated. I was among the dead. It's easier to die than to live. And the Jewish people always had to work harder to move ahead and I'm very proud to be the 92-year-old survivor. I was victimized, but I'm not a victim. It's not who I am. It was done to me. I want to show you my great-grandsons. They were born. Can you see? How gorgeous. Beautiful. I have three children. I have five grandchildren. And I have six great-sons. And that is the best revenge to Hitler. We are so honored and privileged to have you talk to us today, to hear these words from you and to speak to you. I actually read your book again over Shabbat, over the weekend, and was blown away the first time. And now again, I'm amazed at how many new lessons I discovered reading it the second time and that I can learn from you and apply this to my own life. It's like a book one must read many times because in many ways it serves as a guidebook for life. 
every page has something, every page of yours. Yeah, that you've given us all a gift. The gift that you give us is also bringing the female dimension, a woman's voice to suffering, where we've seen in Man's Search for Meaning, that Viktor Frankl's, the similar approach of choosing one's attitude in any given circumstances. Can you tell us a little bit about how he impacted you? Yes, well, I was at the university and someone handed me that book and Man's Search for Meaning. And I took it home, and in the middle of the night, I started to read it. I don't know if you ever read a book, and you wanted to write 10 more pages. And I said, oh, my God. So I wrote a paper very quickly, Viktor Frankl and me, little old me. (laughs) And someone sent it to him to Vienna, and I got a letter. I wish I had it now from Viktor Frankl that he wants to meet me in San Diego, where he was lecturing at the International University. And that's how I became really the the person. And the way my book came out is because Philip Zimbardo wrote the foreword. He kept telling me that people who survived and are famous are all men, and they needed a female voice. We really feel that when we read it. We really feel the emotion and the intellect. That's what a woman is, intellectual and emotional. Yes, exactly, exactly, that I am a woman. I was 16 in love in Auschwitz, and he was in his 30s. He was an MD, but we both used the same skills. He said he closed his eyes, and he imagined that he's at the Viennese lecture hall, lecturing about the psychology of the concentration camp. And I said, when I danced for Dr. Mengele, I really didn't say that in my book, but I closed my eyes. I pictured myself as a ballerina and the music was Tchaikovsky and I'm dancing Romeo and Juliet. Edith was the youngest of three sisters. Her older sister, Clara, a musical prodigy, and Magda, the beautiful one, often teased her about the way she looked. Her mother joked about how she was lucky she had brains because she had no looks. Edith developed a love for dancing that eventually earned her a spot on the Olympic team. But when the war broke out, she was expelled from the team, which left her devastated. She found solace in Eric, her first love, who always made her feel beautiful. Edith dreamed about reuniting with Eric after the war. Sadly, Eric was killed in Auschwitz and she never saw him again. His last words to her through the cattle car were, I'll never forget your eyes. I'll never forget your hands. See, my boyfriend was a very strong Zionist. He belonged to the Betar, and we were going to go to Israel. That was our dream. And when I came home, I looked for him. Because in Auschwitz, I went to everyone. I asked, tell me about my hands and my eyes. Because he said I had beautiful eyes. Yeah. And you never forget your first love. We were going to go to Israel. And that was, of course, uh, I'm talking in the late 30s, early 40s. And we had our own book club. We were very, very, uh, very learned, very erudite. And so I can tell you that we do everything in our power so they know that they didn't die in vain. We owe it to them. We owe it to them. Edith was left for dead under a pile of corpses when the American soldiers arrived. She faintly heard a voice saying, Raise your hand if you can hear me. Are there any living here? Edith remembered how she was often told that she wouldn't make it out alive. Weak, numb, and with no voice, she saw the soldier's body pass by her without recognition. 
As they were about to leave, Magda reflected a sardine can towards the sun, which caught the soldier's attention. Edith closed her eyes and imagined she was dancing. If I can dance in my mind, I can make my body seen. Edith raised her hand above her head, imagining she was dancing the arabesque. She opened her eyes and looked into the eyes of the soldier who would save her life. I will never retire. I don't believe in retirement. I want to go dancing. Do you still dance? Oh, I love to dance and I love the music that you call supermarket music. I love to dance. Uh, Give me Tommy Dorsey. uh, Give me Frank Sinatra. Um, You call it supermarket music. But if you want to turn me on, I love the big band. So you have your music and I have my music. But my music is not better than yours. It's just this, this is what I dance to still. What does bring you the most joy? What I remember when I was with Oprah and uh, she asked me what happened. And, and I said well, that I was among the dead. And, and all of a sudden I heard someone holding my hand. And I looked up and all I saw was big lips. And I never saw a man of color. And so I looked further and I saw tears in the eyes and M&Ms in the hand. So today when I speak at school, they bring me M&Ms. And uh, yesterday I had M&Ms in different colors. And I, I remember that, that GI the 71st Infantry, and I found a man who liberated me, who was part of the 71st Infantry, and he was on 60 Minutes a couple weeks ago, and I spoke to him yesterday and thanked him that he came to get me, and I was also invited a couple years ago to go to Colorado, and uh, lecture on post-traumatic stress disorder. And I discovered that it was the home of the 71st Infantry. So things come around in life. And I told them that uniform that you put on in the morning saved my life and that I'm here today. So I think this time out period, again, I hope, for every one of us is a time for change because when you change, you grow. Change is synonymous with growth. I think if you don't change, you don't grow. So try something new. Try uh, maybe read a book of someone you just uh, heard of, you know. Just don't go back and do the same thing over and over again. So that's what keeps me young. I'm very curious. I want to know what's going to happen next. And that's why we are so upset, because we don't know what's going right. to happen next. Right. And that's right. not stress. That's distress. When I took right. a shower in Auschwitz, I didn't know whether gas or water is going to come out. We have that in common, that we don't know what's going to happen next. Distress is very different. As soon as they descended the cattle cars, Edith's father was taken away to the men's barracks, 
and her mother was abruptly separated from her. Edith watched as her mother was led to the gas chambers by the notoriously evil Dr. Mengele, the very same Nazi who would later make Edith dance for him in Auschwitz. For years, Edith held on to the guilt of feeling responsible for her mother's death. She was the one who had disclosed to Mengele that the woman holding her hand was her mother and not her sister, which might have saved her mother's life. It took her many years to release herself from that burden. It was only once Edith faced her past by going back to Auschwitz that she was finally able to share her story, find freedom, and forgive herself. And there is a difference between faith and belief. People say, I believe, I believe, but I want to know what kind of life you lead. Show me. Show me. Are you a giver? Are you able to really cooperate, not compete, not dominate? So when I was dancing for Dr. Mengele and he gave me a piece of bread, I shared my bread with the girls and I could have gobbled it up myself. Well, and that's Esther later. It saved your life. Saved you. you didn't know it, it would, but it's... my life. The girls carried me, carried me. Imagine, so I wouldn't die. And I can't is not in my vocabulary. I always go to the school and I put I can't on the board quickly. And then I take and take the apostrophe and the T and it, it says I can. Why? Because I think I can. So I, I can't means, uh, no, I'm helpless. And that's a lie. Because even when cannibalism broke out, in Gunskirchen, where I was liberated, and children were eating other people's flesh. I looked at God, and I asked some guidance, and I looked down, and I had grass to eat. And I remember now how I even then chose one blade of grass over the other. So when someone says, I can't, that's a lie. You can if you want to. But I cannot make you want to. But I hope to be a good role model today. You know, the way I dress. It's not I hope, you are. (laughs) You are a mentor and a role model. I am so grateful to be alive. So I'm talking to you. You know, the Chabad all over the world. And they take anyone, anyone. I have a son who's disabled. And the Chabad is welcoming him taking care of him. So I am truly your ambassador and having faith in you that you're going to do everything in power so we would finally have a human family that we can empower each other with our differences. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had a mission of spreading light in the darkness, especially after the war. He believed in rebuilding the Jewish people, and that's exactly what you do. So- I am being told that. How did you get to that place? You were proud, despite being a child and, and feeling like it, you had to hide that part of yourself. Yes, you actually recognize that have to is something that you cannot live without. We have to separate the have tos from the want tos. You have to breathe. You cannot live without air. You see, you see, I have to call my mother. I have to. No, you don't. You have to breathe. You have to sleep. After three days, you hallucinate. Ultimately, you have to eat. You certainly have to be aware 
what is humanly possible for you to do everything in your power to really empower people by the way you live, by the way you are telling everyone that no matter what happens, I never give up. There is hope in hopelessness. So Auschwitz was a discovery. And today, people are locked up and it is a discovery to look at life from inside out and not to wait for someone to come. And that's a good definition of a victim. When you're waiting for somebody else to come and liberate you and make you happy, dependency breeds depression. So don't be too dependent or too independent either, but find a way that I can be I and you can be you, but we're going to be very strong together. That's what it took then. All we had was each other then, and all we have is each other now. So I think about this time when I was liberated and when I was in a hospital, I became very suicidal because I got up in the morning and I didn't say what. I said, what for? I had no purpose in my life. My parents were not coming back. Reality hit me. And I'm so glad that God told me that if I die now, I'm going to be a coward. But if I live, I'm going to be doing something, hopefully, for humanity. And I am, of course, Dr. Edith Eva Eager. I was going back to school. You are. <laughs> yes. It's so inspiring that you are still so passionate about writing. I know that you are coming out with a few more books, even after this phenomenal book, The Choice, you're still writing in your 90s. Can this is the second book, book, The Gift. Can you see The Gift? We get yeah. to see the pre, the manuscript. Yeah, <laughs> wow. That's, that's the second book. And the third book is going to be with my daughter on recipes. So that's what oh. we've started to do with my daughter. She's a gourmet cook. I'm just, you know, an ordinary cook. And uh, you're going to See a lot of Hungarian recipes. Oh, wow. I'm, Gary, I'm actually eating a Hungarian kakash right now, made by oh, my neighbor. Are. Yes. Um, and she's Hungarian. Her name is Sylvia. She survived Auschwitz, and she's your age, and, and we became very close to her. She makes the most delicious Hungarian food. But cooking is the ingredients that we put into life. You see, if you plant uh, a beautiful rose, you're not going to get corn out of it. You know, it's what we plan. And I hope that this time that we can somehow not blame anything or anyone, because while we blame, you are children. Children always blame. I didn't do it. She did it, you know. But when you're an adult, you take life and you take the freedom and know that there is no freedom without responsibility. It's anarchy. The last line in your book, you write, in my 90 years of life, I have never felt so blessed and so grateful or so young. Can you please tell us how you came to feel this way and how do we tap into that? Because we want to feel forever young. Well, first of all, (laughs) you're not a strong woman. You are a woman of strength. There is a big difference. And think young means that you're not smart, you're wise. 
you're young, but you're not young and foolish, you see. One thing mm. we need to really do is watch Fiddler on the Roof because she knows that her husband needs to fear that he makes all the decisions in the family. And guess who makes the decision? But she doesn't have the ego needs. She knows that she can do what she can do the way she can do it. So you're not smart, you're wise. And that's what keeps you young, that you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you say, Rivka, I love you. And that's not narcissistic because self-love is self-care and be a good mommy to you and ask yourself, we Jewish people talk to ourselves. Is this good for me? Is this going to empower me? Is this going to deplete me? Is this going to give me five minutes of pleasure, but then years and years of pain? I think it's very important to listen to your inner voices and to really be a good parent to you. So self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. It's part of listening to your intuitive inner voice is also telling your truth. And that's something that you talk so much about is letting go of secrets. And it took many years for you to share your story because there was a lot of work to do. Can you talk a little bit about how to let go of secrets and how did that bring you to freedom? My daughter calls it Edism. So I give you a couple of Edisms. And one of them is that the opposite of depression is expression. What comes out of your body doesn't make you ill. What stays in there does. And what we do with anger, we either vent it or suppress it. That's why women have breast cancer, because they really don't know how to tell how you feel and what you want. And they're so good in a hospital. They don't want to bother anybody. They don't want the children to know. So I ask the children, never do two things. Don't ask, how are you? And don't say, why don't you? Don't Hmm. give advice and don't ask questions. Make a statement, geez, good to see you. I missed you. And think before you say anything and ask yourself, is it kind? And if it's not kind, then don't say it. I practice it every day. You practiced that in the camps with your sister. When her hair was shaved off, you said to her that you see her eyes. The way she really looked. And I didn't lie to her. I said, Magda, you have beautiful eyes. And I didn't see it when you had your hair all over the place. And so we can always recognize that we have choices. And, you know, I am known to be an expert on post-traumatic stress. It's not a disorder. It's a reaction to a loss. So therapy is grief, not what happened, but what didn't happen. And the example I bring that when my granddaughter asked me to buy her a dress so she can go to her dance, and I came home, and out of the blue I was crying, and I didn't understand what am I crying about, and came to the realization that I didn't cry because I bought Lindsay and Laura Ashley some kind of a wonderful black uh, velvet dress. I cried because I never went 
to a dance. How did you let go? How did you get to this place you are now where you really let go of your sacred? And- I, I can tell you that I um, was unfortunately part of the people who kept quiet almost close to 20 years because I really didn't want you to feel sorry for me. And that was a mistake. That's what I did. And now I, wherever I go, I let people know. And I tell you what I lived. See, that is my truth. When I told my sister I'm going back to Auschwitz, she told me I'm an idiot. We went through the same experience and we had very different responses. So what I like people to do perhaps from me, that revisit the places where you've been and relive that experience as if it would happen now. Because when a woman tells me, I don't know how to tell you I was sexually abused because you were in Auschwitz, and I say, I knew the enemy, and you didn't. So yes, get it out. The opposite of depression is expression. The second one, edism, my daughter said, are you revolving or are you evolving? Because life is like a metamorphosis, you know, and then we shed the chrysalis, but the butterfly doesn't fly right away. They rehearse. And anything you practice, you're going to be better at it. There is no love when you have fear. Fear and love does not coexist. Write down all your fears. You were not born with it. You were born with love and joy. It's very good to get rid of two words. One is always and one is never. I always do that. I never. Instead, you say, up till now I did this. But then you have to release the clutch. So you want to pay attention what you're paying attention to. Because any behavior you pay attention to, you reinforce that behavior. So if you tell me that you want to lose weight, let's say you don't have to, but you say to me that I'm picking out on banana splits and I can't really move away from all the wonderful chocolate, you're never going to lose weight until... And none of the positive psychology does any good unless it's followed with a positive action because love is not what you feel, is what you do. Wow, I love that. It's so funny you bring up losing weight because I'm actually a health coach and I guide people to live a healthy lifestyle. And this is the example you're bringing up. Our podcast is actually called From the Inside Out because we believe that changes start from within. And your dance teacher said, all your ecstasy in life is going to come from the inside. I had chills because this is the philosophy on healthy eating and living that I use daily with. And I use the words of your dance teacher, strength and flexibility are inseparable. And I wanted you to tell us how these powerful words of your dance teacher impacted you in Auschwitz and later on. Yes, yes, because that's what he told me. And also my mother told me in the cattle car, we don't know where we're going, honey. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put here in your own mind. And that's exactly what happened. And I had my sister and I had my mind. And we had to create a family ourselves. If you were just for the me, 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 you didn't make it. 
we knew exactly who's going to make it and who will not. Some people, it was in their eyes, and they were just really day by day, just kind of disappearing from us. I remember one girl told me from Yugoslavia, we were always telling each other how we loved our country and how we're going to go back. And But she decided that we're going to be free by Christmas. And Christmas came and left and she died. So it's, yeah. it's very important to think about your thinking and what you think right. is going and to change your whole body chemistry. Did your mother's words change the way you understood the word freedom? Because to you, freedom was so much more than just being physically in chains and not being able to leave, but it was a mental freedom also that you had to develop. I am doing everything in my power to see to it that your children and grandchildren will never experience what I did. I owe it to my parents to talk to you and let you know that you are the future. So you learn beautifully as a counselor yourself to know that you can't teach anything to anyone unless they are willing to learn. See, you want to learn from me, but I'm not a guru. I don't have any answers. All I know that I want you to know more than I do, that I will die happy, not asking what the world has given me. Suffering is feeling. And God guided me in Auschwitz, that I was able to somehow figure out at the age of 16 that they were the prisoners, not me. Wow. And they could throw me in a gas chamber, they could torture me and beat me, but they could never murder my spirit. And that's what I discovered in the darkest places, as we can discover it now to unite more, to be able to really guide each other. And that's what the Chabad is all about. You often mention that forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. And you have said that you forgive, but never forget. And it just seems so hard to forgive and have compassion for someone who hurt us. How do you get to that place of compassion? I don't have godly powers. You know, uh, it's not about me forgiving anyone that's God's job. But I think my job is to choose a life of freedom. And if I still hate, I'm still a prisoner. I refuse to give Hitler posthumous victory. See, he wanted Germany without Jews. And today, the largest Jewish population in Europe is in Germany. So you see, we got to really change with the times, but no, never forget or overcome. I came to terms with that, that part of me was left in Auschwitz, but not the better part, right. not the better part. So I never mm -hmm. forget. So remember not to try to cheer up a person uh, who is going to tell you that uh, I, I really hurt my finger and uh, don't tell them that uh, you just saw a person who doesn't have arms. That's not going to help that person. Keep the feelings company. And don't say, I know how you feel. That's a lie. 
say something to the child, sounds like you're angry about it, sounds like you're sad about it. You really want that toy, don't you? That you stay with the child and give them permission. That's a good word to use today. Permission to stretch your comfort zone. So I'm a stretch, not a shrink, you know. You stretch (laughs) this time. You stretch this time how you can really unite so beautifully and form a human family so we can hopefully empower each other with our differences. I think you spoke to something so important, especially with our kids, to be able to validate their experiences and not diminish them. Even if they're trivial in our eyes, that they believe that their feelings are valid so that they can continue to share their feelings and not suppress them. When my daughter came home and she told me that she wasn't invited to the party, I didn't know what compassion and listening was. I didn't know how to validate feelings. And guess what I did? I said, I just baked a seven-layer chocolate cake, and I'm going to take you to the kitchen, and I'm going to give you a chocolate milkshake. Everything was served with food. That's all I did. I had no idea what it is to really stay with her feelings and realizing to her is a kind of a big deal, and I minimized it. I said, oh, big deal. You were not invited. It was a big deal. You know what is the best thing for children? A happy marriage. Fight in front of the children so the children know that two people can agree to disagree and stop being the right fighter. I think your children see everything. Everything. So you never badmouth. And the best thing a father can do is show the children how he loves and treats their mother, you, with kindness. And love is not what you feel, it's what you do, that you commit yourself to someone other than you. And that's what it took then. And this is the time out now to regroup and re-decide how you're going to be communicating, especially in a family, not to ask how are you and not to say why don't you, but say, gee, it's good to see you. I missed you to make statements and speak the kind of language that the children would really seek out your company rather than asking how was school, what did you eat, you know, questions can come across as interrogation. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You actually had the unique experience of being married, divorcing, and then choosing to remarry the same very person again. So can you enlighten us and share some of the lessons you learned so that Ida and I and our listeners can benefit from this very unique experience? I tell you what happened when I was liberated, I was a child, I was lonely, I was poor, and most of all, I was hungry. So I, I met this partisan who became very impressed with me because my mother told me, I'm glad you have brains because you have no looks. 
Yeah, and I, I became, that's why people call me the Anne Frank who didn't die. I studied Latin and Greek and presented the interpretation of, of dreams by Freud and things like that. Anyway, he, he bought me Hungarian salami and Swiss cheese. So I didn't know who I married. See, we marry people we don't know. We don't know. That's, that's, but that's in right. Jewish that's people, right. you meet them under the chuppah and then you learn to love each other and learn about each other. So sometimes I think that's much, much better. But when I married my husband the second time, I was a woman to a man. Before that, I was either his mother or his child. We didn't have the kind of relationship that I was hungry for. I know that I could have done better if I would have had an ED eager to go to. Uh, ask Friday night in your beautiful Friday night dinner, how can we have Shabbat every day? How wow. can we, yes, how can we have a balance between working and loving and playing that you can really truly depend on each other for support. So again, you can't love anyone unless you love you. So look in the mirror now and see that I am going to find the true me, the me that I was born with love. I was born with joy. And I, then I learned to be a good girl. And I want to see the kind of things people wanted to hear. But now you can reclaim your genuineness, your true self. Young people say, God doesn't make junk. That is so true. We are one of a kind. There'll never, ever be another you. I came to celebrate that. Do you believe that inner work can resolve many of the struggles that we face in our relationships? Whether you're going to react or respond. Uh, yeah. See, so you have to be very careful when you hear things. I had a 14-year-old boy who was part of the white supremacy who joined a person called David Koresh in sure. Texas. Yeah. And he got up and he told me, hey, hey, doc, it's time for America to be white again. I'm going to kill all the Jews. Hmm. Now, if I would have reacted... I would have taken that boy, I would have dragged him to the corner, I probably would have stepped on him and tell him that, who do you think you're talking to? I saw my mother going to the gas chamber. Yeah, that's right. See, so the most obnoxious person is your best teacher. And you take a deep breath and you provide an atmosphere that people can feel any feelings without the fear of being judged. And all you have to say is three words. Tell me more, because love is time. That reminds me of the, of the saying, triggers are our teachers, or triggers are our mirrors. Is it the yeah. stuff that we react to? Um, those are the things that we need to ask ourselves some questions about. People trigger fear. See, it's, you're not angry what is happening now. They trigger feelings in you that happened a long time ago, possibly with your family of origin. Yeah. Right. 
my sister sang songs about me because I was cross-eyed. They blindfolded me when they took us, took me for a walk so nobody would see what an ugly sister I am. I can still sing that song to you in Hungarian now. Both Edith's sisters, Clara and Magda, survived the war. In 1949, Edith, along with her husband Bella and daughter Marianne, immigrated to the United States where she had two more children, Audrey and Johnny, and built their lives from the ground up. She received her doctorate in psychology in 1969 and has become a prolific author and member of several professional associations. She currently has a clinical practice in California and holds a faculty appointment at the University of California, San Diego. She has helped countless people lead fuller lives by helping them move beyond their problems, no matter how insurmountable they believe them to be. I know your sister moved to Australia. Did you get to visit Australia? I know the opera house inside out because she was a wonderful violinist in the orchestra. She died of Alzheimer's after 10 years. It's a long, long, long goodbye. It was the hardest thing to see her like that. But Magda is alive and well. She lives in Baltimore. She is amazing. When we talk, I ask her to sing to me in Hungarian. And so I come from good stock. And I miss my parents. I miss my mother very much, even today. But I remember her words, that no one can take away from you what you put in in your own mind. My grandfather, his name was Rabbi Chaim Gutnik. He was known as the rabbi of the Holocaust survivors, in particular in Melbourne. He would have been very moved that had the opportunity to connect with you today. He gave the Holocaust survivors empathy and hope and reignited their feeling for Judaism. And I used to walk to his shul and listen to his speeches and I could see the people uplifted from his words of hope and faith. It's one of the things that gave me a strong connection to Holocaust survivors. And I was wondering if you had met him when you went to Australia, if you loved it there. I want you to know that you carry his blood and you give people hope and faith. And I know the in Melbourne, the Jewish people were very orthodox, more so. But in Sydney, I was really part of the orthodox families too, because my sister married someone who were very orthodox. And, oh. and the daughter married someone whose grandfather was a rabbi. So I know that my mother had a kosher home. So I also want to tell your neighbor that uh, I love her to make all the good Hungarian food for you. (laughs) So I will give you soul food today. We love ending our episodes with a quote. Do you have a favorite quote that you can share with us? Oh my God. Self-love is self-care. Be a good mommy to you. One quote that comes to mind for me, just having spoken to you and gathered all this insight is that happiness is an inside job. It has to start within us. And that's when we could radiate it outwards. And we want to thank you for teaching us the capacity of our inner strength and its power to heal. And there isn't a living, breathing human being who doesn't struggle in their own way. And your offering is a gift to all of us. Thank you. Thank you for committing yourself to the Jewish wonderful sisters and brothers that we are never going to give up ever. And we will find a gift in everything. We are all a gift of God. And I'm very proud to say to everyone that I'm very blessed to be a Jewish good, hopefully 
very, very helpful person that can be a good role model. Isn't it wonderful that we Jews survived the desert, the Holocaust, the state of Israel that we have now? I always like to end my talk with lots of yeses. Yes, we are. Yes, we can. Yes, we will. Not overcoming, but to come to terms with it, that everything has a gift in it. And I hope that this time we can talk to each other and make a good decision how we can have a life filled with beautiful, wonderful memories that we make.